You know, I've been humming this tune all day <laughs> long. Uh, as promised, this is a track from uh, Puta Mayo's latest release, World Reggae Music, that you can win by playing our travel and trivia contest. Absolutely, indeed. And uh, just to let everyone know, you can play Travel and Trivia at www.travelin-on.com. You can also sign up to become a member of our Travel and On Club newsletter. Travel specials and travel information news is also available from doing that. We are going to continue talking to... John Blasford Snell, uh, who's leading uh, the Cota Mama 7 to Bolivia uh, in June 2009, exactly June 22nd through August uh, 7th, 2009. And as we continue our conversation, uh, Colonel, I just wanted to get a sense from from you. Some of us uh, city dwellers like uh, Tanya and me, you know, we've really never had the chance to do an, an expedition or, or explore something as extraordinary as Kodamama. What makes it worth doing in your opinion? Well, I think the first thing is that you make a tremendous number of friends. The comradeship on these expeditions is, is amazing. But also you are working with very poor people who desperately need your help. Even if you have a you know, modest education, people can do a, a great deal to assist people in the developing world. And uh, I get great satisfaction of seeing a simple thing like giving a pair of spectacles to an old lady who can no longer sew because she can't see. And we take out loads of uh, used uh, reading glasses with them, uh, with us, and the test is we say to people, if you'd like a pair of glasses, pick up this needle and thread, and when you find a pair that enable you to thread the needle, then you can have them. Well, these people very often come for 10, 20 miles to get a pair of reading glasses. Mm. You know, and, and I think the, the philanthropic mission of, of all of your, your work, but certainly this expedition, uh, makes it very, very appealing. And, you know, speaking of which, um, I wanted to circle back to some of the charity work, uh, you've, you've done. And, um, we, we're talking about Just a Drop Foundation, but there, there are a few others I want to touch on before we leave. Um, but, uh, first I'd like to offer you congratulations on the 10th anniversary of the Just a Drop Foundation this year. Thank you. <laughs> And, uh, and, and just recognize you as, um, as the honorary president. Give us a, a sense. And you mentioned, you know, Just a Drop is, um, your mission is to support water and sanitation and health projects around the world. And so you've, um, you've been in a number of countries like Cambodia and Northeast India, uh, Bolivia, of course. How many countries have, have you served with this foundation? I've never really counted them, but there's a map on the wall of our office it's covered in red pins. So I would, I would guess it must be, oh, 30 or so countries. Mark you, we tend to go to the areas where they need water, which, of course, are the hot places usually, or the desert lands, such as the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, parts of Africa, India, and indeed in, in South America. Um, so we're restricted more or less to those areas, although sometimes we do go a bit far north into the areas like the, uh, say, the Gobi, which can get very cold in the winter, but it's always short of water. Mm. Now, now, Just a Drop started uh, 10 years ago, you said, as a result of um, individuals coming together at the world travel market. 
Um, can you give us a little bit more about the history and the mission of the uh, of the foundation? Well, it was a group of people uh, working with the world travel market um, who saw that the one unifying problem that connected everyone involved with travel was that all over the world there was this need for water, clean drinking water. And they were trying to find an aim which the travel market could concentrate on that would uh, be pretty similar for everyone. And that was why they went for, for this one aim of water. Um, we also, of course, do things like sanitation. You mentioned uh, that. Well, we put in a sewage work right down in Patagonia for a small town uh, that had been pumping its sewage into a fjord, which unfortunately for them was tidal. So whenever the tide came in, it brought all the sewage back into the town, and they wondered why people were getting ill. Um, so we do have a fairly broad spread of, of our work. And then when I became involved, which was a couple of years after it started, and they realized that they needed expert engineers. I was a royal engineer in the British Army for 37 years, so... I recruited lots of my old colleagues who'd retired but still had a sense of adventure who go out and assess the projects when they come to us to see whether they're viable and that the costing has been done correctly. And then if they are satisfied, we send out the money or we send out teams or we use local teams, but we get the job done. Are these um, are these uh, projects, some of the projects you identify each year, are there opportunities for um, volunteer uh, travel or inter- individuals who are interested in volunteering their time to assist with, say, the building of a new uh, sewage system? Yes, sometimes there are. Of course, you have to use local contractors very often because you've got to get the material, the goods, and the supplies uh, to the site. And it's very difficult to do as outsiders to come in and just do that. But when, for instance, as we were doing in Bolivia last year, you've got a 1,000 kilometers over the Andes and up the rivers to get with all the pipes, the pumps, the filters and everything, then there are lots of things that people can do who are not necessarily water engineers to help. Um, and uh, we had everything from people who could fix motors on boats to uh, paramotor pilots. We used paramotors last year, which is you probably know, is a parachute with an engine tied to your back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look a bit like a flying angel. Um, <laughs> and these were very useful for the reconnaissance, for going ahead, and also, of course, for finding sources of water. So we had skilled paramotorists. We also had doctors and dentists treating the local people. And the one village we went to last year, they requested that we bring them an organ. So we brought them what I think you would call an American organ. It's a pedal organ. We bought this from an old church in Dorset, England, and we flew it out to uh, La Paz and then over the Andes and then onto uh, some big mahogany rafts over the rapids, down the rivers, and we got the organ still in one piece to this little village where they got a new church, and the BBC had helped us, so we'd advertised for adventurous organists. And we were swamped with them. I was amazed how many organists are adventurous. Um, and they came, and some of them could play other instruments. And so whilst we were fixing the water and doing the scientific work, we had an orchestra going, and the people got their organ for the chapel. That meant, of course, that they helped us, because mm. we needed them to help us to get to this meteorite crater that we are looking for. And we also needed their help in building the water towers, putting in the pipes and the pumps for the water system. So it was a fair exchange. But 
I thought I'd given up digging trenches after my time in the army, <laughs> but boy, oh boy, I spent a long time digging trenches for water pipes uh, in this little village of Ohaki in Bolivia, and that was, of course, how we discovered these ancient remains of a civilization that had probably, probably been wiped out by the meteorite. Mm. Well, speaking of discoveries, I, I failed to mention the last segment. You've, uh, you guys have discovered giant elephants, a two-nosed dog, um, you know, the lost cities, unknown tribes, as, as, as you kind of touched upon. Talk a little bit about that, because I'm fascinated about, particularly the, the two-nosed dog. Well, the double-nosed dog was extraordinary, because we had gone down to this little village on the Beni River um, in Bolivia, and we'd been on a very exhausting reconnaissance. We came back to the village absolutely shattered late one night, and I was sitting by a fire talking to the local schoolmaster and drinking gallons and gallons of grapefruit juice to try and rehydrate ourselves. And looking across the fire, um, he'd got some dogs, and I looked at one and I thought, there's something strange about this dog, and I hadn't had any alcohol. And I suddenly thought, my God, it's got two noses. And I went and had a close look. And then I realized, I remember the story that the legendary explorer, Colonel Percy Fawcett, who had gone out from Britain to measure the, uh, and, and survey the, the boundaries of Bolivia, Brazil, and Peru, and so on, uh, in about 1913, um, had come home, and he told amazing stories, stories about 60-foot anacondas and double-nosed dogs. And he was laughed out of existence back in England. People just didn't believe a word the old boy said. And suddenly, here was a double-nosed dog in the very place that the colonel had said they existed. So I said to the schoolmaster, how did you get this dog? And he said, I bought it. I said, where? And he said, in River Alta. There's a guy who breeds them. I couldn't believe it. And I said, well, what do you use it for? Oh, he said, hunting. They're marvelous hunters. They've got an incredible <laughs> sense of smell. Well, having two noses, I suppose it would. Um, mm. And so I took photographs, I measured it, I took little bits of hair to bring back. And when I got back to England, uh, it was published in a newspaper, the Daily Mail, which has a wide circulation. And lo and behold, we found two in Britain. And then I heard of four in Chile. And then we began to chase the history. And it seems that these dogs originated in Morocco, went over to Spain, and were brought to South America by the conquistadors as hunting dogs. We haven't quite worked out why they've got two noses, but they keep popping up everywhere. And when I was in Chile last year, I was told that these were the most prized hunting dogs they could get. And they're used largely in Bolivia for hunting jaguar, which, of course, are a slight pest to the people who have cattle out there. Mm. But the other uh, thing was, of course, that when we got back the second time, we found that the first dog we'd seen had sadly died, but she'd had pups. And one of the pups had survived, and there was Zingu, as he was called, um, with a lovely double nose. And while we were in the village, lo and behold, a local bitch had more puppies, and two of them had double noses. So he just <laughs> passed on. <laughs> uh, I'm sure after this broadcast, we'll start hearing about the uh, the double nosed dogs here oh, in the United States. Washington, I should think of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Colonel, we, we really appreciate you taking the time. Um, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk about the Fair, Fairbridge Drake Society, which you formed with the Prince of Wales and uh, the Trinity Sailing Trust, but we certainly 
uh, extend an open invitation to you to join us on our show at any time. Uh, we love what you're doing. The philanthropic mission, I know your hot button is, is the term we use in fundraising. Uh, your hot button is disadvantaged youth, and uh, you've just done a tremendous amount um, for for the youth of this world, and really for families with you know just a drop foundation, you're just uh, just a remarkable person, and I'm, I'm both Ian and I are are very pleased to have made your your acquaintance today. Indeed, indeed. Thank you very much indeed. Well, it's a good. Uh, I enjoy supporting just a drop because I think it really is trying to do something in this sad old world of ours at the moment, and when you see the results, you realize how worthwhile it is. Indeed. And, and speaking of, before we let you go, you um, have a Walk for a Drop uh, uh, event going on uh, this year in, in celebration of your 10th anniversary? Um, yes, we are. Well, we've got the World Travel Market in London, which starts on the 10th of November, and that goes on for three or four days, and that's a huge event. Um, and then I'm hoping to be able to come over to New York for the New York Times uh, travel show uh, which is in February, um, early February next year. Mm. Well, we hope to meet you there. We're not sure if we're going to make it to WTM this year, but certainly the uh, the New York Travel Times, we'd uh, um, like to to meet you. And certainly, I'm, I'm sorry we missed meeting you last uh, last week when you were in New York with our good friend Karen Hoffman. Um, but uh, we appreciate you coming on our show today and, and just sharing uh, wonderful things that you're doing with. Uh, uh, the expeditions with SES and uh, the Just a Drop Foundation, and we look forward to meeting you in the very near future. I look forward to meeting you. <laughs> Our pleasure, Colonel. You've been uh, we've been talking to Colonel John Blashford Snell, um, ex- ex- adventurer, explorer, extraordinaire, and, and humanitarian too. We just uh, can't uh, forget about that part of it as well because he's inspired so many young people and. England and Wales and uh, uh, throughout the uh, UK to uh, look at life with a sense of adventure. So, mm, indeed, important part of his life. 